not shopping before. No, the fucking internet just keeps dropping out. Welcome to Game of Nodes, a weekly podcast on the cosmos from independent validator teams. Hello, Hello welcome to Game of Nodes, a weekly podcast on the cosmos from independent validator streams. Independent validator streams? Independent validator teams. Ah, that was nearly <laughs> professional for the first time in our history. Um, we're here, as always, well, as mostly always, with a very frozen null, uh, with Schultze and with Todd, who's going to be talking to us about uh, the new release of Tender Duty 2, the hottest product on the street for the validator that wants to monitor their nodes. Um, but first up, uh, we got some follow-ups for next week. Uh, from last for next week, what is my sense of time has obviously got very screwy. Uh, from from last week, um, one thing I'd the, add to that: as a kid, one of the things I had the most difficulty with is telling the difference between like I did this yesterday versus I did it tomorrow. And so I'd be talking about things I'm going to do or I did, and I'd be saying tomorrow I did X, Y, and Z. So I don't know why I did that, but just with you talking about uh, going a little bit off, I totally relate. Is there a specific thing where children are, are less uh, aware of the passage of time or something, or is it just that uh, we're both bad at remembering which is the correct word? Uh, there's probably something to do with that. I mean, children don't get object permanence until they're like, what, four? So, or maybe, let I don't know. I don't know children. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway, that was a bit of a weird, uh, a weird divergence caused by me uh, doing the verbal equivalent of a typo. Um, so we've we've got uh, one of the biggest follow ups we've got from last week is um, a variety of uh, stuff on the validator league discussion because um, I gather that's moved on a little bit um, and they're now restructuring. Is that right? The the and I think we're possibly even going to have um ghost and possibly tyborg coming on the show on a future episode actually to talk about how that thing how that stuff is evolving is that right folks yeah i, I believe so i think next week but i'm not certain yeah and uh those and uh eagle eye viewers will have spotted that there is no usurper here because he is i think stuck in a hotel lobby somewhere we presume drinking whiskey on his own um so <clears throat> one of the one of the other nels frozen again um <laughs> i think we have just lost him let's uh let's move on while Nell is frozen to uh some to to talk about tender duty too so we've got todd uh with us who so most uh, most validators uh have the problem of of like obviously monitoring their nodes and i i think it's pretty common that people are going to use something like grafana or zabbix prometheus uh as a sync into the into one of those two services um i guess i'm guessing we're on here mostly using zabbix is that right Okay, yeah, um, for monitoring. And then the other part of observability is uh, is obviously notifications when things go wrong. That's where Todd comes in uh, with the incredibly useful uh, tender duty tool for monitoring uh, Cosmos validator nodes. Um, it's used very extensively 
uh, by people uh, on the show and around the show, and everyone's very appreciative for it. And there is a new version that is just out. So we thought we'd get Todd uh, on the show to talk about what's uh, what's new in Tender Duty 2. So. Yeah, thanks, man. And I, I'll, I'll share my screen, but I'll try to narrate thoroughly since I know some people listen on audio only. Um, so Tender Duty kind of it, it is one of those things where it's like I kept finding myself looking at MintScan or Ping.Pub to see if I was missing blocks. It's like, hey, how am I doing on blocks? And it was like, this is not okay. There's got to be something for this, right? So, um, yeah. So, um, let's see. How do I share my screen? Oh, boy. All right. It requires sharing my whole screen, which is... 47 inch monitor. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that's going to work. Tell you what, um, I can jump back on from a different computer real quick that that makes us easier. Um, and it looks like Noel's moving again. So we'll, I'll pick it up here in a minute. Is that all right, guys? Yeah, no worries. He really just didn't want to ask me a question or something before. Is that, uh, you know, before I was frozen? What did you say, Nell? Sorry. <laughs> well, it's, it's plenty of technical difficulties, this issue. So, um, yeah, before the before the show started, we were talking about uh, we were talking about Horcrux as well, because it, obviously it's been a very common topic on the show is uh, remote signers and using that kind of infrastructure to, uh, secure your nodes so that you don't have to have key master on, on a, on a given box. And, uh, Schultze, you've finally made the jump. I think maybe the first out of all of the game of nodes crew to make the jump to full Horcrux, right? Yeah. So I guess for context, when you run a validator, there's kind of like three stages of, key signing there's what most people do which is you leave the key which is like the way your your validators assigned um on on the validator machine itself and then the validator kind of signs for itself and then the second stage is you have a remote signer so there's a software called tendermint key management system which that says then you, you have like your your node running and then you have a second node running that points to the first one that says hey i'm going to sign the blocks for them and what that does is it kind of gives a layer of indirection uh, in terms of security. Um, you can keep the, 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 the remote signer really locked down and then the node less locked down and you're still secure. Um, another benefit with that is if your node goes down, you can just point it to another one really easily. Um, and then the third solution is you can have multiple signers pointing to multiple nodes to make sure that you're, you're always signing in, in some capacity. So with Horcrux, it's that, it's that third level where I can have um, basically two nodes go down and still be signing perfectly fine. Um, similarly, I can have multiple of the signers go down and still be signing. So basically, it's a method for ensuring that your your blocks are just always signed no matter what, short of something utterly catastrophic. Right. Hey, hey Todd. Uh, back on different machine. Um, yeah. So the we were just we were just talking about Schultz's migration to Horcrux, and uh, he's just explained basically 
what the benefit of of a uh, essentially a cluster of threshold signers is over a single uh, a single box um, uh, running something like TMKMS. Um, so the and, and the interesting thing as well is like there's all of the it's obviously the, there's a you know threshold signer and that's all lots of fun with raft and whatnot, but also just the uh, even to actually create the key matter, you basically need additional tools to shard the key in a particular way and stuff like that as well, don't you? And so, like, there's there's quite a lot of of steps involved in actually making that um, a viable production ready thing you can do, right? Yeah. Um, but the uh, I think the thing that we were also talking about earlier was that the uh, there was some quite unexpected behavior in terms of what you saw when you actually sort of ran it in production, right? Yeah, so for testnet, it was absurdly stable. Um, they had, they are Horcrux itself is typically pretty CPU bound. Um, in whenever I went on testnets, because I set up on my testnets first, it ran perfectly stable. I could run, I ran it for almost a week with just the testnets, and everything worked fine. But then when I brought it onto mainnet, um, I was using AWS instances, and at around 4 a.m. every morning, one of the Horcrux signers would just decide it was time for it to completely peg out on its resource usage, which would cause all sorts of missed blocks. Um, and it was even inconsistent across which day, because this happened the last four days in a row. Some days it'd be the first signer, some days it'd be the second signer, some days it'd be the third signer. And it was just, it's still ongoing as to what the issue was, but hopefully it is more or less resolved as I've switched from using AWS instances, which can be spun up kind of on the fly versus using bare metal machines for the for the signers as well, which is also cheaper because AWS is absurdly expensive. So where do you have your um, bare metal machines at for Horcrux? Uh, I now have one on Volter, one on OVH Cloud, and one on Hetzner. So one in Helsinki, one in Virginia, and one in, I want to say Oregon. So when you, so if you, do you have like a whole bare metal machine just for a Horcrux signer? No, I've already got instances for those either way. So Volter and OVH Cloud hold, um, they have bare metal machines that can work with Secret. And so I'm basically reusing those to also be used as a signer. So, yeah. And I think that's, uh, I think that's the original intent of um, Horcrux is to have it alongside nodes on um actual instead of having them on dedicated instances anyway so is it yeah uh, well when you look at the well when i when um jack used to originally talk about it he used to say that you know you you'd deploy it next to a node um because you know we use it in a bit of a degen way in that you, the original intent is that you would have a swarm of signers for one network, not um, you know sharing it across a couple of networks, like running multiple signers on one uh, node. So the original um, architecture and intent was to launch it out next to a um, a, a node running on a um, instance somewhere, and then it like that signer would just talk to that node. Um, and the other signers, and then the other signers would talk to their node and the other signers. Um, so it wouldn't be like, so you'd have the lowest latency to the node and the network, but then they could talk to each other. 
right like so, you, so so it's like having three centuries each of which has a signer none of the signers they none of them have the key matter so it doesn't matter that you've got three extra things out in the world right yeah so the signers only have a portion of the the key matter on there it's impossible to put it back together unless you've got like them all yeah for some, re- for some reason my mental model was totally broken i thought the whole point was like um it was more like kafka and zookeeper so like you you deploy three signers to a cluster and then they point at a cluster of sentries where if one of those sentries goes down you round robin to the to the next one or you just round robin them via proxy anyway but the cluster of signers is going lads let's let's roll so there's there's many ways to skin a cat with with horcrux and um you know it just depends on how much of a degenerate you are i'm the ultimate a lot of people (laughs) do actually keep their signer on the same machine still that's that's super common um yeah i was talking to someone about it today about um a script that they wrote basically for setting up their machines doing that yeah that's that's uh but i haven't i haven't deployed horcrux on any uh, main nets yet, but that's how I've got my Ansible set up is one signer, one node, same box. So, um, I saw, so Schiltzy, I'm not sure if I tagged you yesterday in the chat, um, but there's uh, Dan BNB, BND for, um, is going to be a Kujira uh, validator. And um, he had this hectic Terraform scripting to like, launch everything in one click it was crazy um but i think it was alongside the nodes as well uh i haven't seen that but it sounds absolutely fascinating terraform is one of those things that where i see it and i'm like oh someone knows what they're doing and then you look at it and you're like ah, i don't know what's going on they might know what they're doing they might not i don't know <laughs> I, I was like i was literally like say this is the timeline right so I was talking to him about some stuff and then he asked me about um, TMKMS, right, because I had the um, that, you know, that script up there that makes it pretty easy. And I said, well, you know, if you want to know about it, have a look at that, read through it. And I, I talked to him a couple of times that day, right, and then he had TMKMS up on the test net and he was pretty happy with it. And then, like, I said, if you, if you want a better solution, maybe have a look at Horcrux and gave him the link to Horcrux. Like two days later, he's like, oh, man, I've spent the whole day scripting. You'll be pretty um, impressed with, like, my setup. And he sent me the link to his um, to his repo on GitHub. I was like, holy fuck, man. He's written, like, 300 lines just for the config file. And then there's, like, four other um, files that, like, make this thing work. I was like, holy shit, dude. You did this today? And he's like, yeah, I started this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Terraform is pretty verbose, though. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, like I, yeah. I did a um uh, spaces with him the other day, and he is like a uh, DevOps genius. So, um, he's like new to new to validating, but like a DevOps, he, he's pretty good. Yeah, I wish he could join my team. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I, you know, I'm sure he is. I, there's, there's. Definitely a thing though with with op stuff that it a lot of the especially the automation scripting tools are uh, 
there's well, there's a combination of things other than that. Well, for, for the purposes of like of, of, of this conversation, that they tend to be quite verbose because obviously their configuration management and all that kind of stuff. But um, the more pertinent thing maybe for this is that there is there are really heavy diminishing returns on something that you don't need to dr very often. Um, and there have definitely been a couple of times in my career where I've spent like a month getting a completely like rock solid set of Terraform scripts or Ansible scripts or whatever for a thing, only to then find that, oh no, we need to change this major thing about the way we deploy the software. And it's like, right, that's that's basically all in the bin. Scrap that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well i mean like you want to you want to deploy like two two database instances behind uh nginx showing my age a little bit there perhaps i don't know if people are still using it as a reverse proxy all the time but um and you like script all of that blah 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 happy days and then you know a month later it's like ah oh, actually we're just spending a lot of time on database ops should we just put it on our amazon rds and you're like yeah i mean we, we can do that but <laughs> but they'll have to rewrite all of our database deployment scripts. And it's like, yeah, well, we can just do it via the Amazon console this one time. And then as anybody who's actually deployed any of the, you know, the the highly managed AWS Amazon, uh, RDS instances knows, you deploy it via the console and then you write a script in case it goes down and it never fucking goes down ever. And then so you're just like, and then you know somebody asks you at a conference, oh yeah, how do you how do you manage your your thingy thingy? And you're like, yeah, I mean we've got like twelve hundred lines of Terraform, but to be honest, lads, we just deployed it via the console. So uh, I would love to pretend that we have some really shiny stuff going on, but that's nah, it's, it's all just paranoia, really. <laughs> so my only comment to him was uh, that he's like, you know, here it is. Do you have any comments? And I'm like. It's on AWS. <laughs> You're going to be broke real quick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, I only went with AWS because I got the $1,000 startup credit. So I was like, eh, I can just blow through these and, and nothing matters. But yeah, in, in apparently I was using, well, yeah, apparently, apparently what I was using would be, I think, $200 a month per signer. And I was like, eh, I need to optimize that away anyway. Even if it's free, I actually can't stomach it. Um. Yeah, yeah I was I think say $1,000 like, won't get you far. No. For us, I think we're going to spray it around DigitalOcean in multiple locations on DigitalOcean, um, see how that goes. But I, I'm doing like I'm, – I'm, I'm doing stepping stones. So I was on TMKMS. Now I'm like single sign of Horcrux pointed at multiple nodes, and the next step will be like once I'm comfortable with that, the next step will be working out how I'm going to reliably do – multiple signers um but yeah it should be pretty pretty interesting but i need to work out my ansible man i uh i need to watch the rest of them videos yeah well i mean there's also like i think one of the things that i'm quite interested in trying to do is like the whole akash thing which obviously I've been experimenting quite a bit with recently but i i you can't well i mean you can but it's going to be hugely complex to deploy um horcrux signers in that containerized environment in like mini pods with the with the akash valid with the akash with the sorry with the validators that you're deploying to akash like by the time you've done that you may as well actually just buy a couple of really big bare metal boxes and actually do it yourself because 
I bet dollars to donuts it will be cheaper than running it on a cash. Um, uh, yeah, so- man. After after your experiments on a cash, I kind of like they turned me off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, that- I'll say that deploying my website on there. Uh, now, granted, this is because it requires zero resources. Was ridiculously smooth. And yeah. when one provider went down, went to the other one. It took me all of like a minute to redeploy. Um, but you can you can deploy it with like um, so unrelated to websites. But if you have a look at the Cosmos Omnibus repo, there's an example in there about how to deploy two nodes with a load balancer to two different providers. So there's that as well. Interesting. I was told that that wasn't something that could be done. You'd have to do it manually. So I'll have to look around in that. Maybe. I, it was a long time ago. Maybe I've got my wires crossed now, but it'd be interesting to have a look anyway. Uh, can't you only deploy? Yeah, I, d- I don't know, man. Because because the provider is the provider is hosting the the deployment, which is a thin wrapper around Kubernetes. So I'm not sure how it could. Or maybe it's on the same provider. Might be my fuck up there. I'm not sure. Yeah, same same provider. It would be pretty easy to just put nginx in front of two two RPCs for sure. Or, or, or whatever it is. I mean, actually, running RPCs, um, I get why. So the difficulty, I think, is supply side. I think we were talking of, we were talking about this privately. Like, is that the tech kind of works like surprisingly well? Um, the marketplace works and all that kind of thing. But the supply side of it is a bit more complicated. And like Shorty says, sometimes providers kind of go away. Um, so I think you would want to be in the position where you had like redundancy. The cool thing is that, like, you can, like, because of Omnibus, like Tom's great work again, you can just, like, bootstrap um, a node from nothing quite quickly. And that is really impressive when you do that. And so that was really what's pushed me down um, into TMKMS finally, like, adopting that properly and all that kind of stuff is because, like, oh, look, you can literally just spin up RPCs. um, And those could be validator nodes that are quite throwaway um longer term and just as long as you know where to point them you know you just you're just reloading config somewhere and that you know you can obviously <clears throat> drive that a variety of ways you can script it with ansible you can do whatever on your tmkms node whatever but but there is that kind of lingering feeling that the provider might go away um and that and and so that's that's the missing piece for me a little bit is i, I haven't really worked out how to monitor it effectively and i haven't really worked out um the pricing because again i think we were talking about it like getting a suit getting a reliable deployment you're sort of 60 70 dollars ballpark i found and that will buy you quite a bit of bare metal that will buy you quite a bit of digital ocean it'll even buy you quite a bit of aws um but that that potentially is a bit of a segue into tender duty uh now null is unfrozen because one of the things I was thinking about was obviously well one of the ways you can monitor you can at least uh, have alerts when things go down is tender duty and since that runs well typically it's run containerized anyway um, co-locating that um, with a, a node with its RPC port open only to other um, containers within the deployment is actually very viable so uh, that's pretty cool 
Um, so I have to confess, I'm probably the only one not using tender duty on, I think, on the entire Game of Nodes crew. You're I'm, not using it at all? What are you using? How do you monitor your shit? Yeah. I use Monit and Cron. And I, I use, I use, I use Monit too, man. It's like Monit is like the core of my monitoring. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah I mean, I use Monit for... <laughs> I've got crazy Ansible scripts that build all these massive Monit configs that check everything, man. Wear leveling on my disks. Um, Shit. You know, you can do wear level monitoring on uh, Zabbix now, too. Plug. Oh, nice. Nice. (laughs) I mean, it's a crazy Ansible script. You just go, like, install that friggin' uh, um, smart monitoring satellite yeah. and it just picks it up and it's like oh now i can do this right but, but so my reasoning here is is this right is that there are lots and lots of things that can go wrong i know that if the shell fails that box is toast right i know if monet fails the box is toast like yeah. those are things that are not going to fail cron is not going to fail yeah so, but- you don't necessarily like have to have a toast box to stop signing, though. You can have a toast signer. Well, sure, but like that's the point of the bash script, which is checking various things about the box on a short interval, and then is going, okay, if any of this is wrong, then I'm going to immediately hit hit a page duty endpoint, essentially. So it's not it's not different significantly different to pay to to tend to duty it's just a, a homebrew config involving monet and a web request via curl so actually what tender duty does is is different and that's why i wrote it at first i was like you know there's nothing doing what it does um and uh it needed to happen <laughs> so it subscribes to the blocks uh on a web socket and it checks um for your signature and that's where it, you know, that's what the main purpose of it was, is to say, hey, if I miss three blocks, you know, I need to get up and fix something. I don't care about node health. I don't care about anything else. Well, now I do, but um, it was built for one purpose and only one thing. And I think the first, the first version that people started using was like 140 lines of code total. So it was like this tiny little single purpose, very Unix-like type tool that did one thing so um and then it, it's it's grown quite a bit and now with v2 it does a lot of stuff so and this is stuff people have been asking for and stuff i've been wanting to do as well you know um so now it's kind of a full cosmos monitoring tool that goes beyond just hey did i miss some blocks kind of thing so yeah I know that like all of us thought it was awesome and all of us use it, but all of us are always like, Hey man, have you thought about adding this thing? <laughs> and you're like, Oh yeah, I'll put it on the list. And I'm like, Hey man, have you thought about like making it like easier to look at? Oh, I'll put that on the list. Hey man, like, can you monitor this other thing too? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So now, um, you know, it's got a dashboard, um, a Prometheus exporter, um, which is still in the works, but you know, like, Hey, if your node goes down, how long has it been down kind of thing? Or, you know, how many times did I miss a block where 
I actually sent in a pre-commit and the proposer didn't include it. And that's that's a big question for me a lot of times if I'm not performing well on a chain. It's like, is this actually my fault or is this, you know, somebody else out there set to sign blocks at three seconds, you know, that's making me drop. So um, oh, and just 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 to explain that for for people who are listening, what's because that this is a thing we've seen on several networks, right? The three second signing. What's the reason that that's causing you to miss blocks? Um, because the proposer is setting a limit of time before that they will propose a block at sixty seven percent. So normally, if you wait, hmm, I think it's. Five seconds after your first pre-commit, or something like that, until you uh, until you actually propose the block. And if you crank those numbers down, you can reduce block time on a chain, but you're also going to have a lot of validators missing blocks. I think this might actually be. I'm I'm suspect that this is uh, causing a problem on Secret Network right now because their their average block time is like 5.2 seconds, which is a hair faster than I'd expect. So somebody out there <laughs> speeding up the block time. So, someone with a lot of uh, like voting weight to yeah. get a lot of blocks. I haven't dug into it, but at some point I will um, and probably reach out to them individually and say, hey. No, man, do it on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we've seen that on so. Todd, I think I lost your audio. Did you guys yeah, lose like, audio? Yeah, it's me or... Okay. <laughs> Battery went flat? No, nah, we can't hear you, man. Um, so, I mean, I, I love Tender Duty. It's like so light. Um, so one thing I want to know is like uh, when Todd gets back on here is... Um, so there's a new configuration... Well, he's, he's completely rewritten it, right? So now it's like, I think it's even a different language now, or maybe it's still Go, but um, he's added in extra features. And, and what I'm going to want to know is like, can you turn off the Prometheus exporter, et cetera, to try and keep it as light as possible? So um, I use Zabbix. I'll probably like query it in different ways with Zabbix through the um, different ways you can actually send commands through Zabbix to your server. Um so, you know, things like the Prometheus exporter, I won't want. But also, like, I'm, I'm wondering if it's multiple network configuration in the one file because you used to have to launch multiple instances and um, configure all your networks separately. And up until recently, I thought that meant that you had to bring them all down when you wanted to change the configuration and then bring them all back up. But Apparently, with <laughs> Docker Damon, I just figured this out the other day. You can actually just update your configuration file and then re-up them into daemons, and it'll just update them. And you can use a, a flag that'll drop all the dead containers and delete them. So, Damon, uh, uh, Damon Hill, no race car driver, <laughs> dead containers. Can you guys hear me now? Dead con yeah, man, you're back now. All right, yeah. man. I've just had so much technical trouble today. Sorry, I just uh, took the liberty to ramble some shit while you weren't here. Oh, no, no, totally. And actually, all this pronounced demon really weird, too. Incredibly relevant um, because, uh, because, oh boy.
Apparently, I can't say demon or Damon. I've always called it Damon. Well, da- Damon is a name. It's a name like it's just a an old English name, and Demon is Demon is a you know like a malicious spirit. So you guys are gonna you're gonna laugh because Chrome didn't have access to record my screen, and it wants me to restart. Oh. <laughs> well, so you have five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, that's literally what I'm going to do, man. I'm just going to explain what's going on with it, and if if you're interested in checking it out, um, you know, I've got a a. Uh, do you have a working uh, a working page somewhere? Because Null can probably throw it up. On yeah, the actually, you know what? I've got a I've got a public share that my notes. Um, share the link in the private chat, and then Null can throw it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So. Anyways, you were saying um, that um, you know one of the one of the pain points was one chain per config, right? And um, so now that's you know you can do multiple chains on one running instance. Um, the dashboard um, is. Um, very much inspired by <laughs> oh boy battles um uh, welcome to summer <laughs> Anyways, the the display on there is uh, very much inspired by what's going on in, on ping.pub, um, except it is quite wide, um, and you can actually scroll over. I think I've got, I think uh, I want to say I share uh, keep the last five hundred twelve blocks, so you can see kind of where you missed, where you signed, um, the different colors. Um, it, you know, when you propose isn't a big deal, but I thought it was kind of cool to be able to see where and when I proposed to see how often it was happening. Um, my dashboard is incredibly boring, um, cause there's nothing fun happening here. A lot of my testing I've been doing with, uh, um, other validators. They've been very helpful. They don't know it, but, um, that's a, uh, that's a low key flex if ever I've heard one. What's that? That's a low key flex if ever I've heard one. Oh, my 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 network's boring because I, I missed so few blocks. <laughs> well, I did miss a block on uh, Terra Classic there, it looks like. So, yeah, that's great. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the dashboard is something that I wanted just kind of because I never really had that information. So, you know, when something fails, you get a nice little uh, orange like alert message and you can click on it and see the details and this is like set up for public use um so it like um normally if it would have a log stream below showing like uh hey the this rpc node is not responding or um something like that right so and um yeah, that, I mean, the dashboard is, it's a dashboard. There's not much to it. Just uh, then, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, the, the 
there's Prometheus endpoint. Uh, if my screen share were working, I'd, I'd show you the beginnings of a Grafana dashboard, but can't. And then um, each thing is configurable now, so you can um, you can alert to uh, Discord, Telegram, or, or PagerDuty, um, and it's configurable per, per chain. So uh, you can have different alert destinations per each chain. So, and you know, like I said, this is like this is done. This is essentially done. I'm working on docs, and then I'm going to tag it as a beta, probably within an hour or so of ending this podcast. <laughs> so, so, so wait, you can do. Uh, I didn't realize that it had the notification stuff because uh, I was looking at. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Half Life, which I know some of the other gamer nodes folks yeah. uh, use for Discord notifications. Um, but I hadn't realized because so I, I think, like I said about the the Akash stuff, has started to motivate me to move to e- even on our servers, probably Dockerizing and actually mm-hmm. deploying everything uh, using our same mount strategy, but starting to use sort of Dockerized containers, and that's. I, Tendermint has been on my list for a, for a while to work out like what the what the gap is between what we're doing and and how good it could be and I think that that might be the killer feature for us there. Yeah. So so how does how does that work? Is it just like sending? Is it just possible to basically configure and send push notifications then to additional sources? Yeah yeah I mean if if you want uh, uh, to alert to Discord, you just set up a webhook on a channel and it can post in and then like. Uh, Telegram is kind of a pain to find the the group ID for the chat, but you can get a uh, API key and then invite the bot into the, a chat room and it can send stuff. Um, PagerDuty, obviously, API key. Um, the the one benefit to using PagerDuty is you can run multiple instances and it'll deduplicate alerts um, based on a key that I set when I set an alarm. So you can have redundant tender duties. <laughs> so redundancy and your redundancy. So wait, you could have you could have like a tender duty on the node, and you have like a tender duty somewhere else pointing at an RPC, and then it would deduplicate them. Yeah, because it uses the same key, right? So like, um... so it, it updates the same message, right? So uh... oh my god, did it? Did my mic cut out again? Uh, yeah, just for a second, it said you were muted. <laughs> Crazy. Um, wow, this new MacBook isn't entirely stable. Um, yeah, man, so it dedupes uh, based on uh, a key that you set. And, you know, d- depending on the type of alert it's sending, I, I set different keys. But, like, um, I think I use the Valcons address you know, the, the, the consensus public key address um, as the uh, the key for like missed block alerts. And uh, so uh, PagerDuty won't resend an alert with the same key, but you can resolve an alert automatically with the same key. So, yeah. So it's, you know, nothing special I'm doing. <laughs> Just something they do for us already. But um, yeah. See what else is new about it. Um, How long did it take you to develop the first tender duty? Uh, about four hours. <laughs> what? 
What a machine. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not hard. You just subscribe to a WebSocket and, you know, look for a key in the in the resulting JSON. So that was that was super easy. It's when you start adding edge cases and configurability and, you know, you break something and then you're like, oh, well, I got to fix that. So, yeah. So with those four hours, you saved probably thousands of man hours. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> you know, but yeah, since then I've put weeks of work into it, you know, but especially now I put, a, I'm about what, seven, eight days into this, you know, this effort. So that's, that's a lot of work. That's significant amount of time. As so an aside, as, as somebody who comes from like primarily a high level programming background, like I'm in the grand scheme of things, relatively new to Rust, like, uh and oh, i guess i've written a bit of go here and there in the past but like this is one of those things i think that people maybe from like i say kind of like me who have moved from more of a high level programming background uh to those of you that aren't programmers it means closer high level generally higher level of abstraction like further where where assembly is the lowest level of not abstraction at all really um up to literally like whatever you see in your web browser I guess is the way of explaining it. But so the, the, the cool thing about the first version, um, which I think I remember seeing at the time, because this is, I think why I ended up just being like, ah, I, I don't need to listen for the web socket. So I'm just going to like knock together a bash script in five minutes. But I, I think I remember seeing that first version and it, it, it is like essentially, yeah, the stuff you can't do in a bash script because it's a web socket subscription. Go's got an API for that. It's like a few calls and then a bit of JSON parsing and then boom, but the really cool thing is for somebody from like a high-level programming background, you look at it and you go like, ah, this is essentially a small script, a Go file that is essentially being treated like a scripting language, and it's going to emit a binary, which then you can pretty much run everywhere. And in addition, you also supplied a Docker file with it, so you literally can run it everywhere with Docker. But it's one of those things that, like, I guess I I hadn't really thought about until I saw, I think it was your, your script for Tender Duty, and... Um, something I, I went back to a little while ago because somebody from Terra was asking how to listen for um, a particular type of emitted Cosmosm event. And I remember that uh, Jans Alex, who uh, d has done quite a bit of core work on Juno, um, had written like a tiny, yeah, again, like a 30-line Go file that you could obviously then compile to a binary and be like, here you are, listen for whatever you want to listen for. Yeah, yeah actually, uh, you know, writing the same. Science for... Tenderman is crazy easy because you just call into their RPC library. And so it's like, Hey, I want to get this. And it's like four lines of code, you know? So, um, the API is well defined there. Um, the annoying part though, is where you end up with different, like some stuff's proto buff, some stuff is JSON. Um, if it's JSON, everything's a string. So now you've got, if you're in a strongly typed language, that's a problem. You know, now you've got to deal with reflection and casting and all that fun stuff. So, you know, RPC isn't great. Uh, GRPC um, client is awesome. I mean, you can do everything, but it's, that requires a little bit more knowledge to, to program against. So uh, again, 
I'll, I'll expose my ignorance to this. What's the difference between RPC and gRPC in this case? Um, RPC is a web protocol, um, returns JSON. Um, gRPC, it's a web two protocol. I mean, HTTP two protocol, but it it all relies on protobuf, which is a binary. Um, yeah, it's the binary okay. format at the core of you know, ABCI, the, the blockchain interface databases. And yeah, okay. I've, I've encountered, obviously, Protobuf is you know, quite, quite deeply embedded in Cosmos and like former life doing data, uh, data infrastructure. Protobuf is one of the things, it's one of those things like Avro, I guess like Avro you see as well, but like Protobuf is pretty common as a serialization mechanism. Yeah, I think one of the big differences is uh, Avro generally you can embed the definitions with the message in protobuf you don't do that so yeah i think can i, I think the motivation explain, for sorry no can one of you guys explain what protobuf is so the people who are listening don't know exactly what you're talking about i don't know you <laughs> so, like, json is uh, like structured data right it yeah back. yeah so, so what is protobuf protobuf's um an efficient data messaging protocol. Um, you define what type everything is, and then it builds. I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like ABIs from uh, Ethereum or EOSIO world, where it's you've got an ABI and everything's binary, and you pack it in. That's that's a ba basically what Protobuf does. It's, it's, it's a it's so a way to create APIs, but it takes it another step where you've got all these binary definitions and ways of compressing stuff, and then it adds the ability to um, build APIs around it automatically. So when you have a type, you can say, "Hey, this is how you set it. This is how you um, how you get it with just a regular function." And then it'll build out the gRPC APIs, and then even on Tendermint, the Rust APIs. So, all, all and and is it is that type like basically it makes a smaller message, like less data transfer and stuff like that as well, quicker. It's just more yeah. headroom, uh, more overhead on both sides. Yeah, you know, for like a string, you get a, a null byte, and then the length of the string, and then you know, if a field is mandatory, you just get a null byte between each one um yeah so it's it's super efficient that way yeah while Sorry. we're talking about these interfaces what what's an lcd now i call it rest yeah in the documentation it's called rest but i have to admit i have no fucking clue what lcd means in this context light client daemon it's from before when uh, the, the client daemon was split out from the Tendermint daemon, right? So it would talk to Tendermint over, uh, I believe, a gRPC socket. And then it was like, well, why do we have this kind of thing? It's like, so it's just right, basically yeah, yeah. another layer to make it easier for people to talk to it. Yeah. Who understand REST and not gRPC. Well, it, it exposes everything in gRPC. Almost everything. But you could alternatively just talk to gRPC instead. If you know how. <laughs> yes, that's the big question. <laughs> it, it is. 
it is something that takes a little bit of time to get your head around, I think, you know, but it's so core if you're going to do any kind of dev on Cosmos, I believe, you know, having a good understanding of how it uses protobuf is pretty key. Yeah. There's this kind of insane thing that happens if you actually define anything new uh, in protobuf and then just kind of like you obviously run it and it just generates all this like loads of stuff and you're like, whoa. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> it's, I, I'm still not a hundred percent, again, not a hundred percent used to how that works in, uh, in Cosmos, but it does give you, it does make you look like you were typing very, very quickly, um, when you do get to do that. So uh, that's not, I know it's not my, my joke. It's, it's something Jabby said, um, cause he's a funnier man than I am. He was like, look how fast I'm typing. And he was just like generating all this protobuf stuff. Um, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> the um, I guess yeah I guess I, I guess that the it, it'd be quite interesting. I, I've never really thought about how it must work under the hood for the arbitrary types. For well, I know a little bit of how it works for the arbitrary types that you generate from smart contracts. But obviously they're then exposed via a underlying protobuf message in WASMD, which is then available to the client. But you essentially do an extra layer of misdirection don't you at the uh, at the smart contract level because you're doing that execute contract and then passing along the stuff and i, th I think this was actually a, a sticking point with talking about auth z um for smart contracts because technically technically if i remember correctly the every smart contract that i've ever seen that runs in cosmos on cosmwasm expects a top level json object as its message because then you can unpack the types in rust you were using um uh the cert what's it called the surdy library um in in this case where um for those listening uh surdy means serialization deserialization so think code something happening through code into json and then back out of json something like that surdy um but the yeah apparently that actually the underlying code makes no assumptions about the shape um so even though in practice it would be pretty hard to work with anything that didn't say oh by the way i'm a message of this type arriving at the smart contract apparently that's not actually an assumption that holds at wasmd level and it was causing some yeah <laughs> you almost have to like trouble. wrap the original message in json inside the message so that's all fun and games. <laughs> well, anyways, I, I, you know, um, a huge thank you to uh, the Osmosis Grants people. They gave me a, a grant to to do this rewrite, and you know, it's something I wanted to do for a while, and uh, it helps, you know, um, a lot of people. So I hope uh, I hope people find it useful, and. I don't have anything else to say about it. So, <laughs> how how was the grant process? Like, did you have to go through like interview panels, or did you write up? You know, yeah, I did a, a, a interview, video call, the interview, and you know, put together a, a proposal that I submitted. Um, I went through a couple of rounds of review. I think you know, it's 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 easier because I uh, I said, hey, I'll I don't want anything up front if I don't deliver, you don't pay me. And if you're not happy, then okay. It was worth a chance. <laughs> so I don't know what the, the final review process looks like. You know, I'm not going to 
call them up until I'm done, but um, I'm close. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that of all the things that we've seen recently that are kind of up for grants and things, tender duty is one of the most actually pragmatically useful things. So I'm sure it's not going to be a problem when it comes to it. Um, I've just noticed we've had a question in the chat from Adam Burke, uh, says, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen, but I'll read it out for those listening on podcast players. Uh, super baby technical question. If I wanted to get information about specific chain, validator ranking block time, any kind of data available on a block explorer, how would I do that? The short version is via RPC and the long version, uh, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's an API for that. Um, could be a new catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's uh, an API for that. <laughs> yeah. also the RPC I, I guess it really depends on what you're trying to get, you know, um, but yeah, um, you know, command line makes it pretty easy. I cheat a lot. Um, I will use um, the command line tool with a, uh, a sniffer <laughs> and uh, catch what request it's actually sending um, because that's right, yeah. so much faster than trying to read the code and figure out what the queries are. And so, um, that's usually my go-to trick. For I, I tend to use Cosm.js and do the same thing, like just like grep through the code for Cosm.js on GitHub to find a, a function signature that looks like the thing that I'm trying to accomplish and then just like fire it off from the console in the browser <laughs> and just see what it looks like in yeah. the network inspector. And obviously like part of it is encoded always. Um, but you kind of, you, know, you kind of tend to get an idea. You're like, all oh, right, oh, I kind of see it's doing this thing. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then the types can get weird depending on if you're using REST or RPC. But I have found a a trick um, with most endpoints. You can do a raw ABCI query over RPC, and that'll give you protobuf back. And then you can just use the native types from you know, whatever X modules you're working against directly out of the RPC. And it's like three steps instead of trying to figure out how to handle all this JSON and reflection and stuff. So that's a pretty cool trick too. Um, so for the, for the dashboard stuff, are you using, presumably it's, it's all JavaScript, right? Or TypeScript, maybe? Um, it's almost all Go. Um, the dashboard is... A little bit of JavaScript, um, you know, the the little grid is all written in Canvas. Um, so that's kind of nasty, but it's fast and it's light and, you know. Um, so can Canvas is, uh, for, for people who don't know, Canvas is like a library, right? Uh, Canvas is a part of the HTML5 spec. Um, it's, you're just drawing with coordinates. So say, you know, make a rectangle from X, Y to, you know, and then draw a line from here, you know, set my color. So um, is that, is that dynamic as well? Or like, uh, so when you say that, is that setting out the grid in the page like that? Or is that using the individual elements like that? Because, um, you know, for setting out your page, I thought you would have used something like CSS grids or something like that. 
Yeah, you know, a lot of people have built stuff using like tables and grids and stuff. This is it repaints the whole image every time it refreshes. Uh, so it's big, big loop over a array of or a, <laughs> a map of arrays. So basically, so would that be considered light or heavy in terms of resource? It's super light. It sips resources. It's a lot faster than including, you know, a giant graphing library. I, you know, I have a few that I really like. Um, I just didn't find any that would do this kind of grid thing. So um, this was an experiment that worked. So, so theoretically, like um, you could create a similar um, dashboard to like what Crow's Nest has and and Bro and Bro. Uh, that's a lot lighter and quicker to load using sort of the process that you've already used for Tender Duty 2 and and building that web interface, right? But you just have to use some graphing libraries and stuff to make it a little bit more, uh, you know. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what you want to see. Are you talking about like a missed block thing for all the validators or? I'll, um, I'll bring it up. Keep talking. I'm slow. Yeah. You know, the, the stuff I did with Canvas is super simple. You know, it's just a series of sequential rectangles. Yeah. So so I think we're getting into the the, the weeds a tiny bit. So, yeah, because you, you're looking yeah, you're still looking at like a complex like uh, Grafana UI. So be, behind the scenes, like a lot of this is probably being drawn with a graphing library. The reason it's the reason it's slow uh, with Grafana is well, depending on what you're feeding it from, is probably the source interval from Prometheus. So it's a combination of block time X, whatever the refresh rate is, plus any throttling, depending on what tier you're on for Grafana. Like if you had the same UI tooling that Grafana is using, I don't know, D3 or something probably, uh, and you had a WebSocket feeding it, um like live data coming in at the speed of the data it it would just be real time um so it's not really it's not really a light client heavy client because almost every client now that has any any client that has any kind of animation right and it's javascript is not light but by definition but what todd's done is use the lowest level version of that tool which is canvas so at some point almost all this stuff eventually is canvas or an abstraction upon html5 canvas probably so by going all the way down to that um you can write something that is painful to write but performant rather than you know having having to sort of import a bunch of graphing libraries to do one thing if you just want to do one thing but if you want to do that one thing and you don't want to rewrite all that stuff from scratch, then that's probably when you bring in a graphing library, right? Yeah, and you know, I just didn't find any cool graphs that did what I wanted. So, I mean, I'm I'm exactly not above bringing in you know uh, e charts, which I love, but it's huge, right? Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So I wasn't trying to be efficient. It just side effect. <laughs> just came out that way um 
Cool. Well, uh, I've I've noticed we're 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 honing up towards an hour now. I mean, obviously, we lost about five ten minutes due to technical issues at the top of the show. So, um, but should we uh, move on to? We've got a couple of Ask Gamer Nodes uh, questions. So, should we do those? Just before we do, I just want to ask Todd one more thing, uh, and it'll be real quick, mate. How do you turn on and off the um, the log which i know i've seen you with a screenshot of the log but looking at the yeah. one that i've got up i can't everything see. is done through a config file um just a yaml file and it's got a variable for it you know hide log or something like that yes or no it's pretty well documented i mean i, I put comments on everything so yeah, I just I saw the um, the log flash up when the page was loading and then disappear. I'm so like, oh, it must be like a shortcut or something to turn it on. Yeah, it's uh, it's checking out. It's making a rest call to see if it should hide that or not because it won't get logs streamed over the web socket if it's disabled. So cool. So uh, yeah, I guess move on the fray to ask game of nodes. Have we had any decent questions this week or any questions at all? uh only it were we've had we've had a couple but one of the ones we have hanging from the other week is ics right because hmm. we well i stirred up quite a bit about ics i know we've been talking about it quite a bit on the show uh and there was a lot said about it when we went and asked and then i wasn't here that episode afterwards so we didn't actually talk about it um but the other the other thing there was actually an interesting discussion uh, from Whispernode, which we got we got tagged in. So I think that there is an implication there that we were supposed to discuss it, <laughs> uh, which was about um, uh, DAP chains and whether or not they are a good thing in Cosmos, which is I think is quite an interesting question. So. Um, it's essentially like the 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 premise here is do you need um do you need a single application chain to run a single app right or can you just so yeah so the i've been under a rock and i don't validate cosmos so thank you Pupmos. so the comment for those of you listening to podcast players almost one hour in no mention of prop 72 the willpower is admirable um from i don't even really also know what prop 72 is i I read something yesterday but i just yeah so so i think the context for why we were tagged in this is prop 72 and i think as usual schultz is probably going to have to explain to us using small words what prop 72 is all about but so the thing that we were specifically tagged in before i tag in Shortly to tell us all what the hell is actually going on was essentially whether or not dap chains i.e chains that run only one application are actually a good idea and the the point the 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 quote of the tweet that we were specifically tagged in was uh several convos in a couple of days my opinion right now is that dap chains dilute so dap chains in cosmos dilate human technical and capital capital in the cosmos ecosystem and competition amongst l1s is ripping it apart and will continue to do so do so because there is not enough of any of the three to go around yet that i think is a really interesting take 
And so I'm like, game on, let's talk about it. Uh, but Schultzy, this is prop 72, is it? Uh, yeah, you know, to be honest, I haven't really reviewed this too much either. I've seen that there's a lot of drama around it right now, um, but I myself haven't haven't yet engaged with it. <laughs> so, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's your answer, Potmoss. The reason we didn't engage with Prop 72 until an hour in is because we don't really know what Prop 72 is. No one knows or gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I can TLDR the drama from what I understand. Beautiful. Um, I just don't know the specifics of this proposal. So the drama, I believe, really stems around Gravity Bridge, uh, if you boil it down all the way. Because Gravity Bridge originally was a proposal in Cosmos um, to implement it. And then rather than doing something to provide value back to Atom, they created their own chain, right? And not only did they create their own chain, they also, I don't know the specifics, but I think they like airdropped to like ion holders and stuff that was just considered very controversial. And I think that this is considered like Gravity Bridge V2. So basically giving away a huge portion of the community um, uh, the community pool to what will effectively become something that doesn't necessarily bring value back to Adam. But that's my understanding of where the drama's at right now. Right. Is there some... There, there, there was some VC slash Lido slash there was some other thing that people were upset about? Ooh. Uh... I know there's there's two aspects to so the, so my understanding is this prop should have been broken up into two props. There should have been like I want to say a liquid staking side of it and maybe a DeFi side, and instead of breaking them up into two separate ones, they've combined them together. And my understanding is that the DeFi side is considered like acceptable, and the liquid staking is considered um, kind of like creating creating more monoliths. Because Lido has, of course, basically taken over all of Ethereum staking. There's something like 60% of all Ethereum staking goes through Lido at this point. And the the take from what my understanding, again, this is from very cursory reading, um, is that effectively you'd be funding another monolith to exist. Whenever the issue, one of the issues, of course, being that there's already two competitors here, right? You have Quicksilver, which is already going to be doing liquid staking. You have persistence and then you also have celestia which would also be providing interchain security already and so there's all these competitors already that exist so why spend i want to say it's like 1.1 million dollars to do something that's already coming to be ah so it's quite literally bringing lido into it interesting so um a comment said that the proposal is promoting lido to build on ics secure cosmos and chain interesting okay Right. Okay. That is interesting. Um, so I don't really know why that's hyper controversial other than the, the gravity bridge, I guess, precedent. Um, Adam Burks made an interesting comment in the, well, in the comments saying, uh, DAP on its own chain is no longer a DAP anyway, but an app chain MO. Yeah, that's, that's fair. And that, I mean, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? I guess the the question is whether the 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 thing that is being objected to here, um, because there's actually because there's two separate things, aren't there? Because there's app 
the idea that you don't have app chains is only possible if you build on, say, Cosmosm substrate or something like that. So you can have like lots of apps on one chain. Otherwise, if you want to write it in Go, then you should probably just write it in the SDK, right? So there's, I think there's quite a few things going on here, right? I mean, if you were building a project tomorrow, right, I think that everybody in this chat would go about it differently, right? Because we all come from different language backgrounds. Like, Todd, you you would go native, right, presumably? Yeah. Uh, who knows what's going to happen, though, with uh, Cosmosm and Go? I mean... Well, I mean, Cosmosm Go is just not going to have the mind share, I don't think. It's going to be kind of bloated compared to Rust or C++, right? So it's also just like, are they going to re-implement all the contracts that they've already implemented and had audited? Like, No. They, with it, without being able to like use those like a library, it kind of seems like it just won't, won't get and, the mind And, share. you know, who knows, man? I'm, uh, no Land looks really neat, too. I mean, I, I looked at some of those contracts and it's like super simple. So, but I don't know yet. Yeah, I, I, what well, I, I, what I would love is is Rust SDK plus Cosmosm. But see, for some of us, Rust is yet. too intimidating, man. Now I started getting into it and I was loving it, and then I ran into the borrow checker and we went a few rounds and I lost. So. What what editor are you using? Uh, I was using Sea uh, Lion, so because uh, I I've got Rust Analyzer, LSP Server, and Emacs, and it just like when I screw up the borrow checking, it goes no. <laughs> <laughs> it goes you've done a bad thing, and you just go sit in the corner <laughs> while I throw compiler errors at you yeah. until you're, until you're very, 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 very in pain. Um, so I, I, I don't know myself. I'll learn it once I have time. <laughs> yeah. I think the, you know, one of the biggest things is just, again, coming from like a high level, uh, language, like the, the package management is just like, it's like all the good things about NPM, most of the bad things removed. And it's just very, very straightforward for like a systems programming language, like package management experience. Like it's really good. And then the 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 dev tooling is pretty pretty decent. But the the best thing is the fact that you can have macros for like serialization, deserialization, and that sort of stuff, where you literally go like, "Here's my enum. Give me it in JSON." In my opinion, macros are one of the worst things that it brought over from C++, right? So that world, it, because they're opaque. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, you know, the rule of the, you know, what the rule of list macros is, is you don't need a macro, right? That's the, the motto. <laughs> but like, there, there's definitely, there's a point, there's a point where, uh, you know, whether that the hammer and the nail are no longer working and you need to just like improvise some kind of, railgun type situation yeah. to drive the nail and you know at that point you do need a macro and, and there's definitely some things in, in like rust where you go like all oh, right i can see that this must have been implemented via a macro do i have a desire to write my own no <laughs> um but it's it's definitely resolving a problem that that, that i had i guess um yeah so um yeah i don't know i get i guess the thing that resonated for me with that with that comment that came in i guess was like you know whether or not 
Um, there's an argument at this stage. And I guess this is the core value out of a chain like Juno or Secret, you know, is that, you know, you should be able to, maybe less so Secret, I guess, because you, with in order to maintain, you know, the privacy guarantees, you have to stay on Secret. But the idea that you can bootstrap a product and then move it off when you're ready, um, the, the thing that kind of resonated with me about this comment was that the idea that there are so few devs in the space that splitting up Mindshare onto loads of app chains is like potentially cross-purposes. But then it's kind of back to, you know, what you were saying about Unix and the original tender duty, right? Do one thing, do it well. And that's the other reasoning behind app chain, right? Um, yeah, and you know... The, the- the one thing that kind of struck me when I heard him say it was, you know, the, I think the whole point of Cosmos is this democratization of blockchains. And, you know, IBC has really helped realize this new internet model, you know, and uh, I think it's great. Um, does it, is it resulting in a bunch of shit chains? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so so the the yeah Popmos is saying Lido would dramatically restructure the validator set and be detrimental to delegator suffrage um I have to say I I don't know enough about about how Lido works in, in order to to sort of talk about that um any further to be honest but so my understanding is though Lido are bringing the chain online, they're going to use ICS, right? So this is presumably the f- intended to be the first out in the wild use of interchain security. I have no idea there, but the idea of flattening the voting power resulting in um a reduction in delegator suffrage, I think is really interesting. I mean, the irony here, of course, is that we've had a conversation here in this chat probably every single time we've met to talk about how we could, you know, resolve the fact that the top five of a chain of most Cosmos chains can help the network. Um, yeah, flat the, the validator set doesn't seem like necessarily a problem to me. I think that kind of sounds like a good... Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I actually want to address um, the comment um, earlier before as well about the brain drain so I think that I think it's a really apt point but I think that it's a little bit um, the conversation is unfortunately nuanced Um, there's actually a Cosmos SDK that I've spec'd out that effectively I I want to develop as an SDK because it could benefit all chains Um, the problem is there's no funding for it right so I've gone to several different um, building funders, I guess, grantees, and everyone's like, this is an amazing idea. I think you should profit. it. We cannot fund you for it. If you want to create your own chain that only does this, great. If you want to build it on Atom or on Juno or on Osmosis, we can't fund that. We can't, we can't fund it at all. So really the only recourse for getting funding is building your own chain. And it does have that side effect of, there is that brain drain. But I think that a more interesting side effect is that, or not side effect, but observation is that if you look at most Cosmos Chain's GitHubs, they have like the last six months, they've done no development, right? 
So it's kind of hard to claim there's a brain drain whenever they aren't actually doing any development. So I'm curious now, what was your, what was your idea about the SDK? Oh, uh, basically, I mean, it's fairly simple. Uh, the idea is essentially, you know, if you've used Venmo or Zelle or Cash App or whatever, a request feature. So like uh, create another module where you could essentially wrap any other transaction in a request. So let's say you're shutting down your validator and you put out a 30 day notice saying, hey, um, I'm shutting down my validator. You could then send out a request to all your delegators with an undelegate or a redelegate transaction, which they would then accept and then be able to go through and redelegate their funds without having to go through any sort of rigmarole around staking. Or even if, let's just say, you and I went out to coffee or whatever and I, and I paid for lunch, I could send you, you know, a one Juno request to pay me back. Just something simple like that, but wrapping all transactions. So kind of like Auth C does for like um, allowances, kind of just a a way of like flipping the flipping that I want to make this type of message of Cosmos message type instead saying I would like you to acknowledge this by sending me back yes. the Cosmos message type I've I've requested. Yeah, exactly right. And so the idea would even be that you could you know add a chain of them so be able to send to multiple people. You just send in a JSON blob. And it would give it out to, to everyone that it needs to go out to, and then they could just respond and, and execute it. Yeah, it's kind of cool. But as I guess you've touched on, the incentives are uh, are quite skewed at the moment, aren't they? Um, which <laughs> this is uh, this actually, you know, the interesting thing is that as well, um, the launching a launching a smart contract on a smart contract chain in cosmos is also economically not as beneficial i mean especially if you want to get investor funding like uh for hal social and stuff like we are bootstrapping it ourselves but i know that you know it also makes sense to launch on a chain where there is a large user base already rather than trying to you know bootstrap your own but you know if you were going after investment money it would be a lot easier to do it um as a single shot chain with only one permissioned smart contract running on it um and i think there have been a few projects that have moved over to cosmos from terra that are basically going that route where they're going to just like bootstrap as their own chain like just one shot and they're going to bootstrap with probably almost no users and maybe die in that wilderness because their investors are like got to be a blockchain so that it cuts both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, my vision for why Juno is great is effectively my imagining of what a chain should do or what a, what an app should do is it should use Juno as or Secret or um, any generalized smart contract platform, create their platform, create their community, create their base, and if they find that they need to expand out, then they can go do that. And my vision of what Juno should be is effectively that that sandbox, for lack of a better term, to create that community, especially when it already has such a strong community. And so if there ends up being that desire where they where you find some reason to bounce out, that's when you do it. Um, I think it's kind of a it's, the question is like of short term to long term goals to me. Um, I don't think that necessarily all new chains are short term oriented. 
Um, I, I certainly don't want to make that claim. But I think that if you're going for like a really long-term project, build somewhere that already exists and expand if you need to. Versus if you need cash now, you would just create your own chain and then dump on retail effectively. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the interchange security bit, because it seems related to this, uh, this 72 thing. Uh, so the background to interchange security and why we're bringing it up on the show is because I sort of said, I, I went on Twitter and just went, okay, um, don't really understand why we need interchange security because it's not really hard to get a validator set. Um, and if, you know, your chain doesn't work out, you know, that's, that's too bad, but like finding validators, um, admittedly potentially varying qualities is is not actually a problem that has existed for for some time um and so <laughs> i was like no, w- what is the actual what is the actual use case what is the problem that ics is solving and i guess the thing that i guess i wasn't really considering as part of this is from somebody who's more used to working in a smart contract environment I'm used to having what Shortsy just described, which is uh, an on-ramp for an idea into a community. Um, but if you're building stuff at chain level or SDK level, then maybe ICS is a better fit for that. But anyway, Twitter was very quick to tell me I was wrong in about 15 different ways. And so I'm going to read out some of the responses that were very good on why we need interchain security. So, um, I'm going to just do some call outs here. Phonic G made some really, really good points. I, I, I can't put them all in full because it would take me ages to read out uh, a thread, but um, around sort of market cap and stuff like that. Um, Skull XBT also said um, having a small market cap is dangerous when starting out. Um, so, and then Simon Water, friend of the show from Confio, from Cosmwasm, uh, said, um, that essentially backed up that this was on a longer thread um saying a small market cap means you can buy out the chain it's an important attack vector to consider in a bear market or for new projects and i think again like especially tail end of last year a lot of the chains that were launching huahua right huge market cap so you look at that and you go where does interchange security fit into this when a literal meme chain can have a a multi-hundred million dollar market cap it becomes more obvious in a bear market. So thank you, Simon, for pointing that out. Um, Eric Opp said, uh, there's pros and cons to ICS and chains should decide. Um, And added a hot take on the end, right? And this one I like. Um, Interchain security is Atom's last chance to stay relevant after Gravity Dex and Gravity Bridge failure. If ICS isn't a hit, then it's over. Spicy hot take. Um, so, um, we continue on there, the fray. I've got a comment just about um, the market caps and uh, you know buying out a chain. Uh, I think that like it's probably would come pr- cost prohibitive even for a shit chain uh, because once you start to buy all the tokens, sp- specifically with how a, a dex functions, you are going to get cost prohibitive pretty quick. Um, you can't just keep buying the tokens without the market cap rising significantly. So, but that's why they halted Terra. I mean, it was Terra, happening. 
Terra Terra worked differently though. It was like um, a mechanism where you uh, cash in the UST and it makes yeah, a yeah, no, yeah. That's uh, right now uh, Terra Classic. You can't you can't register a new validator. You can't uh, delegate new new tokens to a validator. You can redelegate, but otherwise, it's all that was all a hard fork that went into the code. Because once it devalued, it was possible to take over. Um, so, yeah, but it, it devalued to basically nothing, yeah. <laughs> and and the um, you know the distribution of tokens is all over the place because of the way that the um, that minting module was working when you were cashing in UST. But I think for regular chains, like most of them aren't even on a sex. So, but even on a CEX, like once you start to try and buy up a meaningful amount of tokens, it's just going to push the price sky high unless you do it over a really, really, really long time, which I think then people would start to notice before you got anywhere near a big enough amount to actually do some damage to a chain. I wonder if you, if, right, it's so, okay, like if I, okay, so let's imagine I have loads of money and I'm a bad guy, I'm a real bad dude. I would imagine the way to go about it would be to try and over-the-counter purchase from founders of a chain but go to them each individually and just gamble that they didn't tell each other they were doing it out of either embarrassment or sneakiness and then just see if you can get 33 percent because a lot of chains do have that much vested in the founding team you know so that might be possible but imagine this right what's the point imagining i've got my imagination hat on (laughs) So if you go and go to all this effort, right, to, to get all this token and spend all this money to get all this token, why? Are you going to maliciously attack a, a chain that you own all the token for? Even if you I drain the community full, you can't possibly fucking sell it without killing the price of it anyway. It just doesn't make any sense. But I think that's the point though, right? So like DYDX is coming to Cosmos, right? They're probably going to be, as soon as they spin up a $100 million project, um, but there's already other DeFi projects. Let's say they're worth $1 million. They might just buy all the tokens just to literally kill the project. I think that's the very concern rather than some guy deciding that he likes the project enough to, to kill it. It's a, a competing entity that says, this is a really great product and they could take our share. We can't have that. I submit to you that if a project's worth a million dollars, it's worth killing. <laughs> I mean, in crypto, yeah. In like normal startup land, I would feel pretty proud to start a million dollar company. I'd be like, this is it's kind of nice. Yeah. A million dollar company, mate. Maybe before the crash. (laughs) 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 Um, So I just want to pull out um, a few comments we've had in the chat. Um, So Putmore says, uh, interchange security comes with a sacrifice of self-sovereignty, which try and save very quickly. That's quite tricky. There's a lot of S's in that one. Um, Gravity Bridge is a prime candidate for interchange security because its token does not provide sufficient economic security to the collateral it holds. Um, Juno.love says Fortis was worth 35 billion. My brain just halted. Is that a billion? Yeah, I think yeah. So. On paper. By the way, do you like my imagination hat? This is my imagination hat. Um, and... You look very special. Yeah, it's, it's very sensational. 
Uh, and then the a variety of people in the chat have basically been uh, advocating different DGen strategies for attacking a chain. So we've obviously uh, <laughs> we've obviously started something with that line of questioning. So um, a, a final couple of points I had uh, from other people, um, but read out in my voice so that the clever points will sound will attach themselves in your mind to me. But uh, Trill and Juno News um, uh, said that. ICS shouldn't be viewed as an end in itself. Uh, you should have the set as interim when you go when you move to an app chain, um, and then you can get different new validators. So, I think what they're referring to there is that there's a, a second version of ICS coming later that allows you to layer some validators from one set and have new uh, new validators. Right. Um, so that's an interesting development as and when it comes um and then the final point here ah this is this is a good one um is from uh hd valence who's one of the founders of um uh penumbra and one of those people who's very very clever and whenever you use crypto libraries in rust you see their github handle come up all the time to remind you that you are just a small brain grug developer um but they said uh App-specific chains can have their own security and be fully sovereign and pay the cost of that, or they can be secured by the hub or an ICS chain. Or, and this is the really powerful part, they can choose somewhere um, right in the middle and they can change their choice at any time. And that is a, a reference, again, to to layering. So, uh, yeah, those are, those are all of the, the, the tepid to hot takes uh, that I thought were worth mentioning on the ICS thing. I, I'm i kind of going to go and say that I think I stand corrected on on ICS. I think there is a use case for it. I think I just didn't see it initially because I was blinkered by Cosmwasm and by only building on top of smart contract chains. Well, yeah, it's like, um, you know, horizontal scaling, right? You can only scale so big on Cosmwasm before it's, Bloated and can't do shit. Well, I mean, the other side of the conversation is, is calling interchain security worthless, calling Polkadot worthless? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the deep desire of the fray when he said that comment originally, is that he was throwing shade at Polkadot indirectly. 